KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Flashpoint, shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program, Organ Donors Save Lives. KYW's Antoinette Lee, and this week on Flashpoint, we explore how housing insecurity in Philadelphia could be impacting crime rates, including gun violence. And we found that neighborhoods with higher rates of eviction also had higher rates of homicide, robbery, and higher rates of burglary. Our Newsmaker of the Week is helping us understand the impact immigrants and refugees have on our local economy. When we look at the history of immigration in the U.S., that's made us the melting pot worth of products today. Our Changemaker helped make sure Afghanistan evacuees stuck at Philadelphia International Airport were met with a warm welcome. I sort of feel like the least that they could expect was a hot meal and to not have to think about the trauma. It's a half hour you need to hear straight ahead on Flashpoint. Welcome back to Flashpoint, where this week we're discussing housing insecurity, evictions, and its further impact on our city, including crime rates. Joining us today, we have Jenna Collins. She's an attorney with Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, and Daniel Semenza. He's an assistant professor of criminology at Rutgers University. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. So we know that before the pandemic, there were a number of issues here in Philadelphia surrounding housing that have sort of been exacerbated by the pandemic, right? So I know that there have been a number of updates in the recent weeks, including uh, the Supreme Court's decision to end the ban on evictions. Jenna, can you help us to understand where we are now as far as uh, protections go? Sure. So as you correctly stated, the Supreme Court decided to end the CDC eviction moratorium which even that moratorium as it existed was not perfect and didn't cover everyone. Uh, So that moratorium covered people who had experienced financial hardship due to the pandemic, but courts were enforcing it really inconsistently and were taking different views from state to state, city to city, county to county. But it was still protecting millions of renters who had fallen behind on rent due to the economic hardships that the pandemic has started. Right now, that's gone. So we're dealing with a real patchwork from place to place. Philadelphia County has created its own kind of limited eviction protection for tenants who have completed rental assistance applications. And pending the disbursement of those funds, they have stalled evictions on just those cases. But for tenants who either have an incomplete application or haven't yet been able to access the rental assistance portal, they are not able to access those protections. So even here in Philadelphia, it's limited and uncertain and not everyone is covered. We're at a place where we really expect to see evictions ramping back up, particularly as we've seen all these folks fall behind on rent. Now, Dan, you led a recent study on how evictions are tied uh, to crime rates in our city. What did you find in communities with high rates of eviction? Yes, so we did a study of all neighborhoods in Philadelphia from 2006 to 2016. So we looked at roughly over 10 years um, and we found that neighborhoods with higher rates of eviction also had higher rates of these three crimes that we looked at, higher rates of homicide, higher rates of robbery um, and higher rates of burglary. And in addition to that, we found that the relationship was stronger in neighborhoods that had higher rates of poverty. So basically, the theory is that where there are more evictions means also more disruption for the larger communities. 
Yeah, certainly. This study focused specifically on Philadelphia, but there has been other research just this year as well in the city of Boston. And we've also seen more individual level studies that show if you have um, an eviction in your past, the likelihood of criminal conviction is actually higher, especially for low income mothers. So the research is starting to build on this outside of Philadelphia We're talking here mostly about communities and neighborhoods, right? When there are more evictions in communities, it acts as this kind of destabilizing force, right? People are often forced to move very frequently. If they suffer from an eviction, they are often forced to move into uh, worse conditions. And this kind of turnover really interrupts social networks. It really interrupts the ability for uh, neighbors to integrate into neighborhoods, to have each other's backs, to do things like local crime prevention um, and kind of building the collective ties that help to keep a community safe. In addition, we also know that eviction is really stressful. It's really strainful on families. And when you kind of extrapolate that out into whole communities, and it's happening in many places in that local neighborhood, there's just greater strain that can lead towards involvement um, in some of the crimes that we looked at. So I think those are the two bigger things that we think are really happening here. And that has bared out in some of the other studies as well. Yeah. So Jenna, you've worked with families to uh, prevent evictions. So what can you tell us about how this change affects individuals on a humanization level? Sure. There's lots that I can tell you. It does have a really big effect. Dan is exactly right that this is a like really stressful crisis point for families. And we also know that the vast majority of evictions happen to women of color with children. Like one of the single greatest predictors of whether or not you're going to be evicted is if you are a family with children, in fact. And so we're seeing real destabilization, even with an eviction filing. Because first of all, not everyone knows what their rights are when they've gotten an eviction filing or an eviction notice. So some people think they have to be out immediately. They get out, disrupt their life. They leave all their stuff behind. You know, if you have kids in public school, that disrupts their schooling. And suddenly you have kids going to a different school than their neighborhood school or not able to attend school. But then attending court, you know, that means taking time off from work for people who are often hourly workers and don't have a lot of time off, especially if you have young children. And just having that housing instability can often mean that people, they don't have the ability to show up for jobs, that when you're dealing with these moves and going to court, court is at a weird time. So it disrupts pick up and drop off from school. So you're keeping your kids home. You're bringing them with you to court. And right now, the courts in Philadelphia are not offering remote hearings, except for on a very, very limited basis. Um, So you're seeing all of these like kind of domino ripple effects. And then just that eviction filing also means the family has an eviction record, which makes it incredibly difficult for them to find safe, stable, affordable housing going forward. Because you have these tenant screening programs that basically if they see just a filing, that can mean a tenant won their case or the case was filed in error, or they were, you know, a month behind on rent and they caught up pretty quickly. But a tenant screening program sees this and they mark that tenant as a high risk tenant. And suddenly that tenant's not able to get into other good housing, just having the filing. Speaking of uh, of a domino effect, um, our city is seeing unprecedented levels of, of gun violence right now. What factor housing insecurity plays into that homicide rate? Uh, yeah, so the rise in gun violence has has hit Philadelphia especially hard. It's hit lots of cities in the country um, really hard. I mean, we had had a historic decline in violence for decades um, prior to this bump up. Um, and I think that 
right now, you know, it's hard to say because we are right in the middle of everything still kind of going on. So I'm cautious on what I say, okay, what has caused this rise in, in gun violence? But I think one thing that we can be pretty confident in uh, in is the disruption and the destabilizing nature of COVID-19. Um, COVID-19, I mean, Jenna brings up a great point of how it's kind of affected court proceedings and kind of the little things of where people can go and how people can gather. Well, that's also affected every service point for maybe high-risk families that needed after-school program care, um, they needed employment assistance, they needed legal assistance, right? All of those things that were kind of keeping a lot of things in check related to violence um, have suddenly gone away or become much, much more difficult to secure. And I think that housing has also been destabilized to some extent, even though there has been this moratorium, again, it hasn't been perfect. It hasn't covered everyone properly. And I think the sense that even if a person is not actually evicted from their home, uh, they end up with a record or they might end up brushing with a system that they're having a really hard time moving through and getting through um, because of the difficulties of COVID-19. I think about eviction as kind of compounding everything else that might be negative for a family and individual that might go, be going through. It compounds employment issues. It compounds financial issues, health issues. Um, so when you put all that stuff together um, in the kind of melting pot of COVID-19, it's not surprising that that like real destabilizing factor has, has affected violence rates as well. So we don't even know all of the fallout that is to come, right? Yeah, I'd say it's it's very hard kind of in the moment to say how things are, are going to shake out. In some cities, violence has started to curve down a little bit. Um, and so the hope is that as things start to normalize, as programs um, start to get back to where they were to, to do a lot of community outreach, it was really important um, for violence and, and for other crime um, outcomes that that will start to have a greater effect. But, um, you know, I think with many other things with COVID, we just don't know because it keeps coming and it keeps lasting. Um, and we don't know what the long-term implications of that are. Um, so let's talk about what, what people can do. Oftentimes there is a, a feeling of helplessness when dealing with um, you know, the powers that be. So what resources are there out there that people can take advantage of, um, you know, to counteract housing insecurity and, and eviction? Well, I can speak a little bit to this. I mean, we can obviously contact our local lawmakers. There are things that would be really, really helpful when we're talking about evictions and housing insecurity. First of all, there's that eviction record issue that I was talking about. An ev eviction ceiling is something that we are really, really interested in working on at our organization. And so contacting local legislatures, I think we're about to see a significant increase in eviction filings as the moratoriums have ended. So we're going to end up with millions and millions of people with these eviction records who are going to struggle to find housing. And so encouraging lawmakers to take up eviction ceiling. We also know that when filings do happen, that tenants who are able to access counsel, which right now is an incredibly small number, it's like 10% of tenants have attorneys and 80 to 90% of landlords. Tenants who have lawyers are able to access resources that tenants that show up without lawyers don't. Or when the CDC moratorium was in, fact, in effect, for example, tenants with lawyers, you know, I, I could tell a tenant, oh, you have this option, fill out the form, give it to your landlord. 
Um, and now I would be able to tell tenants, you know, have you applied for rental assistance? Make sure the court knows that because it's not a perfect system that the city and the city rental assistance and court are, are in lockstep at every moment. And so having attorneys available, so making sure that there's universal access to counsel for tenants. And then just really encouraging access to, you know, safe and affordable housing. And part of that is this huge amount of rental assistance that we've seen during the pandemic, encouraging lawmakers to continue with large amounts of rental assistance so that when people do have financial emergencies, and there's always been good reasons for those financial emergencies prior to COVID, it's not as though COVID is the only reason that people have a good reason to be out of work, to encourage really wide-ranging access to rental assistance for tenants who might be struggling. Um, and then just encouraging that housing is kept, housing stock is kept up to code. So we actually have a lot of units in Philadelphia that are available, but they're not safe units. When we talk about housing stock, it's really old in Philadelphia. You know, my house was built in 1890, for example. So it's hard to keep that up to code. You're dealing with lead paint issues. You're dealing with leaks and mold and moisture in homes. You know, row homes, like they exacerbate infestation issues. There's just lots of things about keeping housing up to code so that we have a large amount of supply for the demand that we're, we're about to see. And so there is a, a group of uh, state legislators who are introducing legislation that will require landlords to apply for rental assistance before they're trying to, to evict people for not paying their rent. Is this enough? Jenna, I'll, I'll let you go first. It's a start. I mean, it's not enough, right? I mean, I would like to see all of these things that I've been talking about and, and the state legislators and local legislators can do that. I think certainly requiring landlords apply for rental assistance, which is something that the Philadelphia courts have done over the last few months, is requiring an application for rental assistance before a filing can be done in court. I think that's a huge step, a huge step. But I think, you know, right to counsel for tenants, eviction ceiling, I think those are also, you know, really big steps. And we have a great program in Philadelphia. It's an eviction diversion program that it's not just applying for rental assistance before you can file. It's also going through a mediation process and they're matching tenants with housing counselors who can match them to some of those resources before they, it escalates to a filing that's going to cause that eviction record. And that way we can prioritize the limited amount of counsel for tenants to the tenants where it's not resolvable. So we're not spending hours and hours in court on cases where it could have been an easy agreement before court. So, I, I mean, I think those are some, some smaller steps, but there's also like really big, larger, like housing justice things about, you know, good cause evictions and rent control and all of these things at code enforcement. I mean, that's a big one. Um, I, I, I could go on and on and on. I could spend the entire show talking about some of the solutions that I would like to see for our most vulnerable tenants and citizens in Philadelphia. And as we wrap up here, Dan, I'd like to give you a, a last chance to dance. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would say, I mean, it really is kind of a wraparound approach and a multi-step approach at multiple levels that are required to, to fully address uh, the issue of eviction in Philly and outside of it. Um, I say the same thing when I'm talking about recidivism rates for people living in prison. I say the same thing when I'm talking about people who are at high risk uh, for gun violence victimization in the communities. You can't address a large issue like this by just focusing on you know one policy um, or one perspective of making the change. There has to be you know things that address the tenant 
relationship with the landlord. There has to be a policy approach. There has to be kind of, um, you know, catch all services for people who are in acute crisis. You have to kind of think of it as, you know, a leaking ship and plugging up all of the leaks in that ship, because if you just do one or two, it's still going to sink down um, eventually. And so I I think it's really important to think of this holistically uh, rather than just kind of a silver bullet. Dan and Jenna, I want to thank you both uh, so much for your time and being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee. Our newsmaker of the week is Lauren Schwartz, president and CEO of Philadelphia's World Affairs Council. KYW Sheridan Howard spoke with her about what immigration offers our city and what we offer those who come here seeking a better life. Philadelphia has a long history of welcoming new arrivals as an extension of America's promise to those in need of a new home, liberation, and freedom to thrive. Lauren Swartz, CEO and president of the World Affairs Council of Philadelphia, says the recent reception of thousands of evacuees from Afghanistan is simply a continuation of the role the city of brotherly love has always played in the wealth and health of American culture through immigration and economic growth. Welcome, Lauren. Now you say welcoming the Afghan evacuees is simply another chapter in the story of America, because this is what America has always done. This is what Philadelphia has always done. Absolutely. When the first people from outside of this country started coming to what we now know as the U.S., they came for all different kinds of reasons, but generally not because things were going really well in their country and they had a life that they loved, whether it was fleeing famine or war or looking for economic opportunity or freedom of religion or to get away from a monarchy When we look at the history of immigration in the U.S., that's made us the melting pot we're so proud of today. It's generally people leaving a difficult situation and coming to the U.S. for the promise of what they hope is a greater life. And let's talk about the trauma. You leave your home, get onto a plane, and you land in a country that is so foreign to you. The language, the food, the culture, the religion, everything's different. Can you imagine leaving your home, whether you were just going from Philadelphia to California with just the clothes on your back and maybe only part of your family and certainly not your pets or your belongings and showing up? That would be traumatic. And then we can layer on the pandemic and the fear around that and layer on trauma that people have come through. And the fact that perhaps they don't speak our language and they're not familiar with our customs here in the U.S., It's a layering and layering upon complexities that are really hard to grasp. It's an American who maybe has a home and a roof over their shoulders and and has a job and their kids perhaps are just starting school right now. And that's what we're thinking about when we wake up. I can only imagine how difficult it would be. And as you said, many of these immigrants are being processed in a third country. However, they managed to get on the evacuation flights, which we saw on the news and it was tragic and disturbing to watch. They landed somewhere. Maybe it was in Germany, maybe it was in Qatar. And now they're coming to the U.S. with all of those layers and all of that trauma and perhaps hope, but a lot of uncertainty. 
And many of them, I think about over 8,000 uh, of our friends from Afghanistan have landed here in the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. Now, when thinking about the recent census, it showed that Philadelphia has really grown more diverse and we're better for it. Can you speak to how immigration really lends itself to economic prosperity? Because I really don't think people recognize the need that we have right now for a larger population and how that affects our longevity as a city, but also as a country. Sure. There's many ways immigrants help an economy grow. One is just that the way capitalism is structured and most Western societies are structured and non-Western too, you need population growth in order to fuel your economy, in order to make your tax system work and to, for families to care for one another uh, vertically and horizontally and however families take shape. So there's that basic level where if you have population growth, you're more likely to have economic growth. And when we see population growth starting to slow or stagnate or in some countries go backwards, economic developers, governments, think tanks all say this is an issue. And one way that our country and particularly our city in Philadelphia has grown over the past 10 and 20 years is through bringing in immigrants and people who were born in other countries. And in Philadelphia, we're such a diverse place. Are we a melting pot more than a salad bowl? That's up for debate, right? But we are diverse. We have a lot of different languages here, majority minority city from a race perspective. And so people come to Philadelphia and they say, Maybe I can't figure you guys out, but because we're not all the same. But if you're different, that feels a little bit more welcoming. You can hear different languages spoken on the street. You can go to different neighborhoods and get halal food or go to Little Africa in Southwest Philadelphia or go up to Port Richmond and get Polish food and speak your language. Find some people that remind you of home. I think people often see newcomers as a threat when really population growth means economic growth. It's better for everyone. And this is simply the way America works, right? Sure. The last census shows us that our population growth continues to come from people from other cultures, Latino folks, Asian American folks, primarily. And the what we would say typical American white people, African-American people, our numbers are not growing as fast as people from different cultures. And you see that when you walk down the streets in Philadelphia, you hear it uh, on, on stuff on the bus and we get to uh, experience it in all the restaurants that we have. And as our kids go back to school, um, our children are growing up in a real multicultural environment. And this is good for the city. When we look at the world and how we interact with it, 95% of the people in the world live outside of the United States. And about 85% of global economic growth is outside of the United States. So for the Philadelphia of today and the Philadelphia of tomorrow to be competitive and to engage in those opportunities and to grow from those opportunities, whether it's through education, business, and social relationships, the more globally fluent we are as a people. The more we're sitting between an Asian American and a Latina on, on the bus or at a restaurant or walking down the street, the better positioned we'll be to participate in the economy and society that we're heading into. Now, historically, this is the role Philadelphia has played, always the welcoming city from port to port. But really, when we think about the culture and the identity of Philadelphia, this is what we're talking about. And this is a big part of who we are as a city. And it's one story I like to tell is really thinking about our name. Philadelphia, meaning the city of brotherly love in Greek. And I have a, a mentor and a friend in the UK who said, well, from, from our perspective here in the UK, uh, there's an addendum to that name. It's the city of brotherly love. And there's a long parenthetical notation that says, where you don't have to love a king, you don't have to worship a god, 
you don't have to pledge allegiance to really anything. When this city was founded, we were one of the first cities where you didn't have to choose or focus on a certain religion. And of course, the revolution started here where we said, no thanks, British monarchy. And so this is part of our ethos where you can sort of be who you are in Philly. Will an Afghani immigrant and refugee understand that right away, showing up at the airport? Eh, maybe, maybe not. I think their, their minds are on other things. But this is part of who we are as a society. We might not understand you. We might not even really like you. But we'll say, you can live here. Live next to me. These row houses were all the same when you knock on the door. And I hope that that continues through as we continue to welcome refugees from Afghanistan and immigrants from all over the world and that they find their home in Philadelphia like so many millions of people have since the 1700s. And really this goes both ways because you say the economic possibilities really depend on whether or not the refugees decide to stay here in Philadelphia to make a home here. Absolutely. Now the Afghan immigrants and refugees that are coming in now where they end up has a lot of different factors. There might be personal factors to their friends or family or people who can house them in another part of the U.S. Uh, where immigrant resettlement agencies can serve them, what the U.S. government does. So it might be their choice. It might be where they're sent to, where there's pockets that are ready to receive our new neighbors from Afghanistan. But some of them undoubtedly will stay here. And we uh, we as Philadelphians are well positioned to welcome them and have them become a part of this beautiful, crazy fabric that is Philly. And welcome them home. Welcome them home. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us really a new perspective on immigration and how it really does help us rather than hurt us. You're welcome. Thank you, Sarah. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee. Our changemaker this week is a group who brought some halal relief to some people who could really use it. Our area has played a historic role as hundreds of Afghanistan evacuees have passed through Philadelphia International Airport in the past few weeks. And there have been a lot of people wondering how they can help. So when this group got the call, they answered. Last Monday, Jill Fink and her friend Judy received an email from Chef Jose Andreas' World Central Kitchen. Saying that World Central Kitchen had just heard that there would be 40 Afghan evacuees and would be waiting for military transport and would be stuck there overnight. And was there anything we could do to get meals to them? From there, Jill and her network sprang into action, organizing meals. And we really wanted to make sure that we were providing culturally appropriate and familiar food. When I think about what these individuals had been through leading up to their arrival at the airport. It's, I sort of feel like the least that they could expect was, was a hot meal and to not have to think about not knowing when the last time was that they had showered or slept in a bed or when they would even have that next, right? And the things that they had left behind and the friends and the family and the trauma, being able to like provide them with a hot meal would be one thing that they shouldn't have to even think about. Within three hours of that email, they were dropping off 80 hot containers of chicken, rice, and salad to Philadelphia International Airport. While Jill did 
did some of the legwork and all of the driving. She says the crews at Healthy Picks Deli and Pasha's Halal are the people to thank. What these restaurants did, they did really spring into action to prepare meals like on a moment's notice at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night when most of them were getting ready to close. And that, I think, is just a great metaphor for what happens when individuals come together and work towards a common goal. And while she's grateful she could play a small role, she says it's only the beginning of the work ahead. Like this will require sustained effort over time. And for all of us to remember that it's not just immediately about getting them settled with a roof over their heads, but um, what it means to welcome them into our community and to provide them with jobs and education. If you know a change maker we should highlight next, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter at ARLeeOnAir. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. That's it for another episode of Flashpoint. I want to end us with this quote for the week. Focus on what you can do, not what you can't. Small steps turn into miles. This show was produced by Arian Fulcher, Sheridan Howard, and me, your host, Antoinette Lee. Until next time, y'all, thank you for listening. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.